Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, welcome to the Jason in the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to have a good show because we're going to talk briefly about the news. Highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. But then I'm very honored because uh, we have Speaker Newt Gingrich who's going to join me. We're going to sit side by side. Uh, the former Speaker of the House, he's got a new book out. It's called March to the Majority. I got a new book that just came out, The Puppeteers, The People Who Control, The People Who Control America. And he's got a book out, The March to the Majority. So I highly recommend both. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the news. And um, like I said, there's some really important stuff that's happening here. Um, but I do want to highlight um, – <laughs> What the White House is now saying, their story keeps changing about the migrant patterns. Now, if you recall through the years, the Biden-Harris administration on immigration basically gave a tacit approval. They signaled even before they took office that if Joe Biden were to become the president, the borders would be wide open. Come here. And that's why millions of people did. They took their lives on the line. So many, a countless number of people were raped and trafficked moving across the border. And they drug the drug cartels, the so-called coyotes, the money, the thousands of dollars it's paid per person in order to move them across the border, not just from Mexico, not from Central America, but from literally more than 150 countries across the, the country. They're moved here, putting extreme pressure, particularly on Texas, Arizona, and obviously New Mexico and California, but really into Texas and Arizona where the, the migrant patterns and the illegal immigration patterns uh, are, are have the biggest, biggest challenges. Well, uh, a couple days ago, the White House press secretary, she came out and condemned the practice of transporting migrants because of the, quote, pressure it puts on non-border states and cities. The way it was described is it kicked over a beehive of criticism online. That's an understatement. For her to criticize the pressure that it's put on cities that aren't actually physically touching the southern border, boy, isn't that rich? It, you know, it's the Biden policies. And wh what's driving me nuts here is you hear the Democrats time and time again say uh, we need comprehensive immigration reform. I think there are some things that are worthy of immigration reform. But why not enforce the current law? That's the problem is they don't enforce the current law. If they enforce the current law, guess what? We wouldn't have the problem that we have, but we do have it because they don't enforce the current law. And then the White House gets up and complains about the pressure that it's putting on non-border states and cities. That is just so fundamentally wrong, top to bottom. All right, let's highlight the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. 
All right, uh, Jesse Waters, primetime. He had his good interview. And Olivia, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Kralzig, Zach, something like that. I, my apologies to Olivia. But she said her gender studies teacher gave her a zero on an essay about transgender athletes because she referred to some as biological women. The feedback read, quote, Olivia, this is a solid proposal. However, the terms biological woman are exclusionary and are not allowed in this course as they further reinforce heteronormativity. Heteronormativity. Not a word I always say every day. Please reassess your topic and edit to focus on women's rights, not just females, and I will regrade. So she gets a zero by saying biological women. That's how absurd the argument on the left has become. That is just absolutely stupid. All right, the second thing I've uh, got on our list here of uh, stupid stuff is um, you got to go and look <laughs> look at uh, the gaffes that are made by Joe Biden. Uh, they are frequent. They are consistent. They are almost on a daily basis. But the New York Times, in its infinite wisdom and its objective reporting, came out and described the president as sharp, fit, and having, quote, I guess I have a hard time even saving it with a straight face, striking stamina. Are you kidding me, New York Times? Talk about a puff piece like we've never seen before. That is just a disgusting display of so-called journalism. I don't care if it's an opinion piece. Nobody is accusing Joe Biden of having striking stamina, sharp, and being fit. This is after the president fell yet again at the Air Force Academy graduation. That, to me, is just stupid, New York Times. So I'm thrilled to have uh, the Speaker of the House, the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, Sitting side by side, Mr. Speaker, thanks for... Well, Jason, it's great to be back with you. Yeah, no, look, I have watched from afar. I've gotten to know you since my time in Congress and with Fox News. But uh, to sit down and have this kind of discussion, I I really do appreciate it because uh, you've been there, you've done that, you've seen things, and you got this new book come out, March to the Majority. I think you were just telling me it's your 45th book. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. The march to majority. But I want to talk about you and your background and kind of sure how we came to be sitting here. But I want to also hear about the book. So let's start with that because we're at a unique part of time. I mean, here we are. All these presidential candidates are lining up, getting ready to run. Um, they've just started bantering back and forth. But that's really going to drive what happens in the 2024 race. I mean, all these down-ballot issues, the Senate, the House. But you got to have a, a working majority, right? you got to have a mandate from the American people to actually get well, stuff yeah, done. I, I, well, I think there's an opportunity in the 2024 election to set up a choice so decisively that you actually have a governing majority in the House, the Senate, and the presidency in 25. and. A major reason I wrote March to the Majority was to take the lessons we'd learned both working with Ronald Reagan and then on our own. Uh, It took us 16 years to grow a majority. And then for four years, we negotiated with Bill Clinton and got him to sign 
you know, conservative reforms like welfare turning into work, um, a tax cut that led to economic growth, and four consecutive balanced budgets. And so I wanted to lay out sort of a playbook that this can be done. Uh, we have a chance, I think, because uh, Biden and the Democrats have gone so far to the left that I think they're leaving a huge vacuum where a Republican alternative that is explained in positive terms, things like parental rights, for example, uh, that that's an 84 percent issue. Right. And so you can imagine a, a situation growing where a large number of independents and Democrats decide they just can't stay with the radical left. And they'll end up in a kind of large, the kind of election that Nixon won against McGovern and that Reagan won against Mondale. Now, if you're on the left, you're looking at this equation and you're thinking that uh, the right to life issue is going to drive you to the finish line and their superiority in terms of organizing and getting out the vote. Would I be wrong in that, that that's how they view this election? Yeah, I, I think that's their, their view. And I think, first of all, on abortion, the challenge for them is that they are so much more radical than the American people. The, most Americans believe you have to have an exception for um rape for life for incest uh, and for life of the mother but they also believe that there's some reasonable limit around 15 weeks uh, the Democrats have, have gotten stuck on you know anytime you want up through the ninth month including in some states proposals for infanticide up to 30 days after the baby's born well most Americans think that's very radical that's brutal and so the question becomes in a sense who's the more radical if, if you are a hardline, uh, no exceptions person, you're probably going to lose an election. That's what happened, for example, to the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania, uh, because people say, wait a second, that's too radical. So it's a, in a sense on the abortion issue, it's, a, it's an argument over who's more radical. And I think what Trump did recently in talking about really dramatically expanding adoption opportunities uh, and uh, creating almost an adoption core of people who want to be parents um, is is a step in the right direction because it, it it expresses concern both for the mother and the baby uh, and doesn't pit one against the other. When I was speaker, we passed a $5,000 tax credit for for adoption to encourage people to be able to afford to right. go through the adoption process. And that was part of our answer on the abortion issue. So in the book, March to the Majority, what's the premise then that Republicans can get – it's those true independents, right? The people right. in the middle, that last 5% that'll sway an election one direction or another. What are the issues or what are the tactics that can actually get that march moving to the majority? Well, we we created with Bernie Marcus's help in um, 2018, a program called uh, America's New Majority Project, which people can see if they go to americasnewmajorityproject.com. And we began very extensive testing. I mentioned earlier parental rights, for example, which is an 84 to 11 issue. Right. Uh, and I, I was enough of a student of Reagan that I believe if you find a 70 or 80 percent issue, stand next to it and smile, uh, <laughs> you're, you're probably going to win. Uh, and, and I would start with, with issues where the American people have reached a consensus. Uh, we just saw this in a sense in the in the fight over the debt ceiling because – uh, only 24% of the country favored a debt ceiling with no spending cuts. So Biden's position was one out of every four Americans. Right. Three out of four Americans didn't agree with him. 
Right, right. And that's the kind of thing where if you if you listen to the American people, Lincoln once said, with popular sentiment, anything is possible. Without popular sentiment, nothing is possible. And if you read Reagan's farewell address uh, in uh, January of 1989, he says, uh, all of these victories I won, actually you won, that it was the American people who got right. Congress to do what it had to do. And I think that this sense of a Republican Party that, that has solid conservative values but that listens carefully to the American people can, in fact, grow a very substantial and very stable majority. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned I, – I, I've always I, – I really tried to study as much as I could Margaret Thatcher, and I love her quote when she starts talking about first got to go out and win the argument. Then you can go win the vote, right? Right, exactly. And it's the same same premise, I mean, right? It was, it was very interesting that you had Prime Minister Thatcher, President Reagan, and Pope John Paul II, all in the same period, all understood the power of argument, and all understood the use of words. Yeah. Uh, and they really changed the world. I mean, Thatcher changed British culture about entrepreneurship and the work ethic uh, to a degree which is still largely true, even though the Conservative Party. Disintegrated after she left. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Reagan understood very similar values to Thatcher. Uh, unfortunately, George H. W. Bush didn't understand anything about Reagan, <laughs> despite having served with him for eight years, and didn't understand that breaking his word on no new taxes would shatter his coalition, which right, it did. Right. Uh, but I think that uh, you you do have, and this is part of my point in the book, March the Majority. Understanding where the American people are, understanding the language they talk in, not the language of, uh, you know, think tanks in Washington or the language of the New York Times, but the everyday way normal people would talk with each other and communicating at that level. And again, I, I tell people, uh, go back, go to YouTube and pull up Ronald Reagan's October 1964 speech. It's called A Time for Choosing, which he gave on national television for Barry Goldwater. It is the heart of the Reagan message. It never changes. Uh, yeah. As he once said, he kept saying the same things and the world came around. Uh, <laughs> and, by 19, and, and people forget, Reagan won the largest electoral college vote victory over an incumbent president in American history. And it could have been bigger. And it could if have he had spent some time in Minnesota, he probably yeah. could have pushed it even bigger, right? And, right. Um, all right, let's go back. Mr. Speaker, let's go back for a little. I want to talk about little Newt. You know, we, we've we've seen you. You're an iconic figure, but that early childhood, the development, the uh, the little pivots or changes in your alterations in your life, those those small things that maybe changed the direction. Walk us through that a little bit. Kind of where you grew up. I was born in, and well, and, I, and I walk mean, us I, through I actually, that a little bit. I actually described part of this in March to the majority because it explains part of my political activism. I was born in Harrisburg. Um, my um, my mother divorced and remarried. My stepfather was a career soldier. Uh, he went off to Korea. And when I was 11, uh, my mother let me, this was a much safer and calmer time. Right. So she let me go by myself to a movie theater on a, one afternoon in August. Uh, and I saw two African animal movies. And I got all excited because I love animals. And as I walked out of the theater, there was a sign next to the theater, pointing through an alleyway that said City Hall. And my grandmother had been very big on teaching about doing your duty and being a citizen. Uh, and so at 11, I made the decision. I was supposed to go catch a, a trolley car home. This was back when Harrisburg still had trolleys. 
Uh, but instead, I thought I should go and I go, so I go over to City Hall and I walk up as an you know, 11 year old kid. And I asked the receptionist, I said, I want to talk to somebody about a zoo. And she said, well, I guess that's the parks department. So she sent me upstairs uh, and uh, I walk in and, the, and this is this is part of why I'm a historian and not a social scientist, because I don't think anything occurs uh, with lines. There, there's too many complexities. So I walk in. And the, the lady in charge, the receptionist, says, well, the head of the Parks Department isn't here today, but his assistant is. And his assistant was a career civil servant. And so I go in and he says, I, I say, I want to talk about a zoo. And he, he actually, Harrisburg had had a zoo before World War II and closed it during rationing in World War II and never reopened it. So he pulled out all the records of this is what it costs to feed the lion and this is what it costs to feed the zebra. And he talked to me for a while. And he said, now, your job is to come back next Tuesday and talk to the city council. And I said, okay. Now, how old are you at this I'm 11. Point? 11, okay. And this is why I think history is important. He then picks up the phone, calls my grandmother, who he had dated 40 years <laughs> earlier, and says, Nudie's here in my office. I'm sending him home in a cab. But he has to come back Tuesday. Right. So Tuesday I show up because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I sit in the back of the room and I listen to people talk to the city council. And the last couple before me, I still remember vividly, the last couple before me gets up and they're complaining about garbage pickup on their street. And then it's my turn. I'm the last one. And I get up and I make a pitch for a zoo. Well, you're a typical reporter. It's a boring August day. Right. Your choice is... <laughs> couple complains about garbage pickup or cute 11-year-old calls for zoo. Guess which one made the paper? Yeah. A couple weeks later, we, my mother gets a letter from Korea where my dad's serving in the Korean War. And he says, keep him out of the newspapers. <laughs> Boy, that which, went well. <laughs> I was say, something which didn't work very well. So that was sort of my entry point into politics. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Speaker Newt Gingrich right after this. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. That's interesting because um, I remember early on, I was in high school and KZZP in Phoenix, Arizona, promised commercial-free programming for a day, brought to you by, and then they would name whoever was sponsoring it. So I wrote a letter to the editor, and I said, wait a sec, KZZP said it was going to be commercial-free, but when, every time they promoted who's doing it, that's not commercial-free. That's a commercial. Well, go. they ran it, and I couldn't believe it. I think, oh, my, my, my little letter made it into the newspaper. There it was in black and white. And it kind of thought, oh, I can do this again. And so I kept doing this type of thing. And it was one of those early things in life that kind of helped change the trajectory of my perception that I could be part of the solution and I could highlight problems. And that's that, interesting. That's, it's, it's really important to get across to people that these little steps, encouraging young people yeah. To take these little steps yeah. can lead in directions you you never quite imagined. Yeah. So as you moved along, were you playing sports? I played uh, football. I played baseball. Uh, I wasn't particularly. I I have I had very bad eyesight, 
Uh, but it was okay in football because I, I played either a tackle or a fullback. <laughs> you so just in, had to know the general school, shape was over right, here. Right. Now, again, a t- typical <laughs> example, um, we were in the Army. When my dad was stationed at Stuttgart, and I went to the Stuttgart American High School, uh, I, could actually, you know, I could make the varsity team because uh, it was a relatively small school. When he was transferred to Fort Benning, I went to Baker High School, which had 2,400 students. Wow, big school. And the two first, and this was in high school, two first string tackles weighed 220 and 250 pounds. Right, right. Okay. Uh, And it was sort of hopeless. Right. I was basically practice. Yeah. You know, put him out there, let them run over him for a while. Uh, (laughs) But it it was fine. I learned a lot playing sports. Uh, I played first base in baseball. And uh, particularly in football, I learned a lot just about endurance, which in later years when we were trying to create a majority, I think some of the lessons I learned playing football were really important. Now, this is why I see women's sports under attack right now, and I think they're missing out. There's so much to be learned in sport. It can be an individual sport like tennis, but it can be a team sport like, you know, football or, or baseball. Or I was a place kicker in college, and... You know how valuable that skill set is, yeah. right? You know, come on, honey, let's go out and kick a few balls after. <laughs> it's kind of a worthless uh, thing, but in dealing with pressure and being part of a team and and not coming up with excuses, you got to actually do things. Um, it was all so valuable. So, but when did? I mean, I understand the story when you're 11, but when did you kind of turn the corner and say, "Yeah, I think elective politics is probably right for me." Well, I decided in. Uh the spring and summer of 1958, um, between my freshman and sophomore years in high school, uh, my dad was stationed initially at, in Orléans, France, and we went to visit a friend of his at the uh, who was at Verdun, which was the largest battlefield on the Western Front in uh, World War One, and um, we stayed with him. It was a huge battlefield. There were 600,000 people killed, Germans and French, uh, in a nine-month period. And we stayed a couple of days looking at the battlefield and staying with a friend of his who had been uh, drafted and sent to the Philippines, served on the Bataan Death March, hmm. and spent three and a half years in a Japanese prison camp. So yeah. during the day, you're looking at this horrendous explosion of people dying. And in the evening, you're listening to the cost of losing. Hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks later, the French paratroopers came back from Algiers and killed the French Fourth Republic. And brought General de Gaulle back from his home at Colombele des Eglises and said, and he created the Fifth Republic, which is still today the longest serving non monarchical system in French history. Hmm. Uh, and then we were transferred to Stuttgart, and the week we got to Stuttgart uh, was the first Berlin crisis, and the U.S. Army went into Lebanon with tactical nuclear weapons offshore. And uh, all that was real. And then, and, and it, 7th Army Headquarters where we were stationed at Stuttgart, they would go out on alert like at 3 or 4 in the morning. This was before there were missiles. And they were proving they could get into the field before the Soviet aircraft could arrive. And I realized one day they were all leaving, but all the dependents were still sitting there. Uh, So I really spent a good bit of August thinking and praying about it. And I decided that, that countries needed leadership to survive and that I had three jobs. Um, what do we need to do to survive as a free country? How do you explain it so the American people give you permission? And how do you implement it once you have permission? 
And I would say that from August of 58 to today, that's all I've done. I mean, those, yeah. those the, the, I, I still I, I th see myself as a citizen. I get up every day asking those three questions, and it doesn't change. So you get into elective politics, you're in the body, but the Republicans have been in the minority for a long time, decades, right? Right. What was the difference? I mean, you your leadership is often credited for for having the guts and the plan to actually execute it to get it done because people before that didn't believe that Republicans could be in the yeah, majority. I'd, I'd run once in the middle of Watergate and lost with 48.5% against the dean of the delegation. I came back and ran a second time with Jimmy Carter at the head of the Democratic ticket in Georgia and lost with 48.3%. Oh. <laughs> uh, I came back a third time. Carter now had lost some of his uh, popularity and the incumbent retired. He'd beaten me twice and right. you know, he'd proven his point and decided that was it. <laughs> so I won in 1978. When I got there in December of 78, before I was sworn in, I said to the leadership, we've been in a minority for 24 years. Don't you think we ought to have a plan to get to be in a majority? Now the leadership at that point was totally exhausted. They'd been through Watergate. They'd been through the uh, Reagan-Ford uh, primary fight in 76. And they were, they, they were exhausted and defeated. They lost about a third of their friends had been defeated. Hmm. And so, yeah. which was almost like a death in the family. Right. And so they didn't have it. They didn't believe they could be a majority. They didn't have any energy to try to be a majority. They expected to lose to the Democrats. Yeah, but we were a younger, newer group. And we said, wait, you know, we didn't come here to right. spend our lives. So they, they, Guy Vanderjack, who was the chairman of the Congressional Campaign Committee from Michigan, said, I really believe in Newt. Uh, we, why don't we establish a committee uh, to plan a majority and make Newt chairman? Now, I hadn't been sworn in yet. So this, this was all brand new. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Speaker Newt Gingrich right after this. That's amazing because... <laughs> I underestimated how hard it would be. I remind people we lost in 80, 82, 84, 86, 88, 90, and 92. Wow. Yeah. And we finally won in 94. People always forget about yeah. that when you but, win. Yeah. So. Well, we, we coined the term cheerful persistence. Right. <laughs> because about a third of the Republicans were mad at us because we were making noise. And we were making their life harder. And all of the Democrats were mad at us. Right. And so when people would come in, newly elected people would say, oh, I want to be part of getting to be a majority. We'd say, that's great. Understand this is what it's going to be like, and you have to have cheerful persistence. So we were trying every two—it wasn't like we were rope-a-doping. We were trying every two years, and we would learn out of every election things that hadn't worked. And, and part of the point of writing March to the Majority was, is to be sort of a playbook. It, it, it shows you this is what worked, this is what didn't work. Um, we, stood, we clearly stood on Reagan's shoulders. I, I helped organize in 1980. Uh, I was still a freshman. I helped organize the first Capitol Steps event. Uh, and Reagan and David Broder at the time wrote a column saying this was really courageous. Most Republican presidential candidates ran away from the party because they needed the independence and the Republicans were right. such a minority. Reagan believed that he had to leave a lead a team in order to get anything done. And so Reagan was willing to come to the Capitol, stand there with every House and Senate candidate, and he called it a contract. He had five big ideas. And so there's, and there's an interesting sub-story here. Um, so we had, we had put this all together. It had actually been an idea that, that Bill Brock, the Republican National Committee chairman, brought to me. And 
We were about to get this all done. And um, the theory was everybody would come in, House and Senate candidates. They would all pledge to do this. And I'd helped invent it in part because I was sure that my good friend Mac Mattingly, who was running for the Senate, would get about 48 or 49 percent. But we needed something to break through and that he needed to somehow do something vivid that would associate him with Reagan, who was going to carry Georgia. Um, and so um, all of a sudden, about two weeks before the event, two guys come by from the Reagan campaign and they say, you know, we've discussed it and we don't think we want to do a contract. And we don't want to have all these guys pledging something. We want them to come in and then Governor Reagan will give a speech. And I said, let me get this straight. You want every House and Senate candidate in the country to come here and stand like spear carriers in the opera while Reagan gives a speech. And I'm not going to ask them to give up a day of campaigning right. to do nothing. Yeah. So I called Vanderjack and he said, well, look, this is your project. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to cancel it. He said, well, you're in charge. I mean, do it. So I had my staff call over to the Reagan campaign and say, as of this minute, this event's closed. It's not going to happen. About two hours later, I got the only call I got in the entire campaign from Bill Casey, who was the campaign manager, who had this very deep, gravelly voice. And I got on the phone. He said, young man, I understand you want my attention. <laughs> and I told him what we had done. And he said, I think... And I told him, we have five ideas that are in Reagan's speeches. They're in the platform, you know, and we want people to sign up and be a team. And he listened to me for about three minutes. He said, I believe in a few hours you'll be very happy. Same two guys come back over. It's a great concept. We're totally for it. <laughs> <laughs> and we did the event. And and I think partly because of the event, we won. Uh, we, we had a net gain of 14 Senate seats. We, wow. won, we won control of the Senate when nobody thought we would. Uh, we carried five seats by a combined total of 75,000 votes. Wow. Uh, and I think that the, 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 mar <laughs> the identity with Reagan, the marginal positive, the fact that it was positive, not negative, right. all, all helped us. So that was an example of the education we learned working our way to become a majority. So you've written this March to Majority, but how are things today different than then? Because, I mean, the world's changed. I mean, we didn't have the computers, the mobile phones, the social media. No, they're I mean, much faster so much paced. Uh, we were in the early stages of talk radio. Rush Limbaugh was already famous and it was very important to us. And we had, shortly after we were elected as a majority, we had Radio Day and invited all the conservative radio hosts in the country to come and broadcast from the Capitol. Uh, but we had nothing like the the Internet was in its early stages, although uh, the day after I became speaker, we put the House information system online, oh. which is uh, one, of, yeah. one of our early contributions to opening up the system. And one of my proudest moments was when Bill Archer, who was chairman of Ways and Means, and had come to Congress in 72, long before there was an Internet. Archer gets up and he says, we've now introduced the, the Tax Cut Act of, of uh, 1995. And you can get it, and he read the URL for people to oh, go. Oh, really? Now, for Archer, this was all magic. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> but that was the beginning of what we now have. And, and uh, as you know, when they had the agreement on uh, the debt ceiling, they posted it on Sunday night online. Right. All, every, 99 pages. Everybody in the country could read it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the opposite of Nancy Pelosi's idea. Oh, that, I believe yeah. me. I sat through eight and a half years of 
Nancy Pelosi and literally stuff was coming out at two, three o'clock in the morning. And she expected, you know, she voted on it, uh, you know, right. two o'clock in the afternoon. Well, as she once said, you have to vote for it to find out what's in yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's there are it's no truer words ever That's spoken right. by anybody in D.C. than Nancy so, Pelosi. So um, I would say it's more partisan today uh, that there is I, I realized the other week there is no deadline. Yeah, it's permanent. It's hourly. It's not. But it's not like daily news or weekly news. This is a constant, unending process. Uh, I would say also that uh, the Democrats have gone much further to the left. Yeah. This really began in the '60s. People forget this. Uh, Theodore White, in the making of the president in 1972, White says McGovern's problem is that the liberal ideology had become a liberal theology. Yeah. And we tend to forget well said. that. Yeah. We had there were 2,500 bombings in the late 1960s. There was an active uh, uh, group of, of uh, organized people that set out to uh, excuse me to spring the literally Black Panthers who set out to assassinate police talked about we are going to assassinate police. Uh, so we've been through a cycle of left wingism before. I think it's now come back with a vengeance, and it's broadened out. It's, it's much more anti-white. It's much more anti-Christian. It's much more uh, uh, in, against traditional sexual behaviors. Uh, I mean, a, a perfect example is the current uh, fight over the, the Dodgers have invited a viciously hostile anti-Catholic group who, who wear clothing like nuns and say a whole series of, of really despicable things. Now, the idea that the Dodgers would invite them to come. Honor them. They, gave, and, they were giving them an award. Yeah, this is a and, – and in Sacramento, the Democratic legislature honored them. Yeah. Uh, but you look at that and you think, I mean, what what is the upside of this? Why are these people yeah. – why do they think this is a good thing? Uh, and so that that's how much bigger the gap is today than it was, say, in the 1970s or 80s, or or even in the 90s when we were running. It is uh, remarkably different. So the book is uh, March to the Majority, um, so perfectly timed with what's going to happen here in, in 2024. Um, I need to ask you a few questions about sure. your own. These are rapid questions. I, you okay. know, I mean, how many times you've swung the gavel there as the yeah. speaker, but I don't know if you're properly prepared for these. Well, you ready? Let's see what happens. All right. All right. Uh, first concert you attended? First concert uh, was the, the, the BJ's. And, very good. Who was your high school mascot? Uh, a lion. The lion, because there were a lot of lions in Georgia, yeah, evidently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you have mountain lions, right? Yeah. Uh, what uh, What was your first job? Not hey, Newt, go take out the garbage. I mean, uh, like your first job well, where you I, worked I, for somebody I, I, else. I worked. I worked as a uh, groundskeeper uh, in high school. I worked as a, a pin setter for a. Oh yeah, for Bolle, uh, yeah. Back yeah. before they, this was a, yeah. it's actually a, a, a Luftwaffe pre World War II bowling alley before they had pin setting automatic machines. Yeah, and yeah. so I used to go and set pins. Uh, I, I worked as a babysitter. Uh, yeah. Basically, I were did. Were you a good it. babysitter? Yeah. Huh? Were you a good babysitter? Yeah, because usually they were very young kids and they went to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I also uh, delivered newspapers. I mean, so I, I tried a variety of things. All right, that's good. That's good. Um, what, what's what's the Newt Gingrich superpower? What I mean is, like, what is it that you can do probably better than most people realize? I think everybody has one. They just maybe can't articulate probably, it. Probably focus intensely. Yeah. 
I, I can think about a problem for a long time. And and focus well, focus determines reality. Um, if you could meet, if you could uh, say, hey, honey, guess what? We got a special guest coming over. Anybody in the course of history? Well, I mean, they I'm, could come over and break bread with the the Gingrich family and and share a meal. Who would you want to? Who would you well, want to I mean, have come? Obviously. From my perspective, the first choice would be would be Christ. Right. I mean, because it would be unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, politically, the first choice would be Lincoln. Why Lincoln? Uh, I think he's the most complex and smartest person ever to be president. I think what he did in holding the North together through four years of war is just an extraordinary study in leadership. Yeah. And I think he really understood. It. He got it. Yeah. And his ability to succinctly capture an idea and share it was just at, at a, one of the most tumultuous times in our yep. nation's history. It really Pro- is amazing. I mean, probably the best writer ever to be president. And he served in the House. Communicating. So yeah. They, yeah, good things right. there. That's right. Um, pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I like pineapple a lot. Yeah. Well, I like pineapple, but not on pizza. Oh, I oh, eat pineapple on pizza. No. Yeah. Well, the judges don't like that answer. But Sorry. We'll give deference to the Speaker of the House. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last question. Best advice you ever got? Um, Never give up. Very good. Very good. Well, congratulations. March to the Majority. New books out. It's just come out. And uh, congratulations to you. Thanks for your leadership. And a lot of us have learned a lot from you along the way. You've inspired a lot of us. It's it's great to be back with you. And I've admired you on on both television and uh, everything you're doing. And I wish you well and continue to do it. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Jason in the House podcast. All right. I want to thank the speaker. He's he's written a number of books, uh, a lot of wisdom there, a lot of experience, and a lot of success that we should learn from. His newest book, March to the Majority, is out now. Uh, I also want to remind people, my book's out now, doing quite well. I appreciate the purchasing of it. I hope you're liking it as much as we enjoyed writing it. There's a big effort behind doing all the research to put it together. But puppeteers, the people who control, the people who control America. I hope you enjoy that. And for this podcast, hope you can rate it. Please do rate it. You can also subscribe to it. And I want to remind people that if you can, you can listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I hope you join us next week. We'll have another exciting guest. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.